The reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 6. I'm going to start at verse 25, not 28 as it says on the pew slips. And that's found on page 1070 in the Bibles in front of you, in the seats in front of you. So page 1070, John's Gospel, chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, what are you doing? How did you get here? When, sorry, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you are the, ate the loaves and, that have, and have had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he's given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. As it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the Son, the one who is from God. Only he has seen seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, 
which I give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this, while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Thank you, Thea, for reading for us. I think this is going to be a hard passage to, to make sense of. Um, uh, I'll tell you why. First, it's quite long, isn't it? Uh, there was an awful lot there uh, as we work our way through all that material. Um, quite a lot for us to, to wrap our heads around. Um, secondly, I think the content is a little bit tricky. Uh, the, the language or, or the, the concept at the center of it, the, the idea of, of Jesus being the bread of life. Because John was helping us think last week, we've got a funny relationship with food, haven't we? I mean, food is a sort of a pastime nowadays. Um, you know, we have celebrity chefs and food is something we play with um, and entertain ourselves with. Um, not so much that which keeps us alive, that which is essential. Uh, as it would have been um, in uh, the culture that Jesus was speaking into. Um, and then thirdly, the, the sort of the, the style of uh, the interaction that's going on here. Um, I don't know whether this would be fair, but in a way, it, it's almost as if this is like a sort of post-match discussion, um, you know, with the, with the sort of the pundits in the studio having a little natter about the game that's just taken place. Because the context is that we've just had the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, this most remarkable miracle, um, clearly very important, recorded in all four of the gospel accounts, um, and that the crowd who've seen this and been very engaged by it have pursued Jesus across Lake Galilee um, and have caught up with him. And it looks as though this entire interchange um, uh, took place in the synagogue in Capernaum, um, almost like this sort of you know, post-event discussion. Um, as uh, they uh, uh, debate with Jesus uh, what it is that they have seen. And the temptation is to imagine that somehow the things that Jesus has said and the, and the things that Jesus did uh, are now under examination. Um, and he's seeing if he, can, um, uh, if he can sort of win them over in some way. Only I'm not sure that it's Jesus that's under examination. Uh, there's a story told of um, two students um, who were in their gap year and they were doing Europe, you know, like you do, do Europe. Uh, and they'd sort of clocked in all sorts of things that they were going to do during their trip. And one of those was the Louvre in Paris. thought they'd sort of, you know, tick that one off. Um, and there they are in the Louvre, but they're all finding it all rather amusing. And these two students are just sort of meandering around from room to room, uh, looking at the Grand Masters on the wall and, and just finding it all quite funny and beginning to make sort of jokes and quips about the, the, the paintings that they're seeing there. And there's, a, there's an old art curator um, who overhears uh, some of their little 
um, barbed comments uh, about um, the, the old masters on the wall. Um, and the more he listens, the more enraged he becomes. Until eventually he can't bear it anymore. And he goes up and he taps them on the shoulder. Um, and he says to them, I won't do the French accent. He says to them, excuse me, but in this art gallery, it is not the paintings that are under examination. It's good, isn't it? Eh? Not the paintings that are under examination here. Well, I think the same is true here. I don't think it's Jesus that is under examination in the conversation that we read about in John 6. Now, I think it's the crowd. And I don't think it's Jesus that's under examination here this morning. It's you and me. We're under examination as we come to these words of Christ. Uh, I've got three headings. They're on the back of the, uh, the service sheet if it helps uh, just to see where we're up to. Um, uh, I want to think in terms of the options that Jesus rules out, uh, the claim that Jesus makes, and then the consequences that Jesus declares. So first, the options Jesus rules out. The, the, the first sort of section of our passage, it, you kind of catch people doing what they do. Um, they're asking Jesus for more. Um, they ask him for um, for more food. You know, they, they've seen this feeding, um, and no doubt they've caught that this is a pretty good thing, isn't it? If you can get all of this bread uh, given to you, uh, well, that would be an economic marvel uh, for them when so much of their earned money uh, goes on buying food to keep them uh, alive. So, so on one level, they just want some more material bread, more of the stuff that filled their stomachs. And in that sense, we can be like them. We too can be focused on the material, our possessions, our careers, our achievements, stuff that we sense might make us fulfilled or happy or content. And yet, a bit of us knows that it won't. And I guess that's why when Jesus tells them in verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, the kind of the material stuff that you can get hold of. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. Well, they're they're ready to listen. They have some sense that he's right. But what they imagine is that they need some sort of code, some instructions about the way that life should be best lived. So do you see what they then ask him? What must we do to do the works that God requires? Now now again, this is a bit what we're like as well, isn't it? We'd love some code that would enable us to, to sort of have the secret of life, the way that life is well lived, some rules that we could follow in order that we could be sure that we keep God happy. That would be handy. We want to believe that our niceness might be enough, that our respectability might win the day. And that makes the answer that Jesus gives really rather disturbing. See it there in verse 29. Jesus answers them, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. 
catch it. It's almost as if the crowd are saying, look, look, we know we're a bit below par, but could you give us some hints, one or two rules we could keep that would just get us over the pass mark? And Jesus won't do it. Jesus says the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. I don't know, how, how would you capture the difference between the two things that Jesus, uh, or the, the, what it is there after and what it is that Jesus is offering? I, I, funny example, think of this. Imagine uh, you go for a walk down by the River Cam. I do quite a bit of imagining in this little illustration. You're going for a walk down by the River Cam and imagine you fall in. And imagine that instead of this being a sort of, you know, the calm, meandering cam that we're familiar with, it's a raging torrent. Okay, there's been a lot of rain. Uh, and it's swooping you down in the current uh, towards the lock, uh, the sluice gates at Jesus Green. Uh, and there's nothing you can do. You, know, you, do you, you do your best swimming to try and swim yourself over to the bank, and you can't do it. The current just whooshes you along. I mean, you're in big trouble. Now, what do you need at this particular point? Yeah, do you need a little bit of swimming advice? You know, try cupping your finger slightly more in the power drive of the stroke. You don't need that. That's no good at all, is it? I mean, does it occur to you that in this perilous state that you're now in, headed for death, you need to give to charity? So every time your head pops above the water, you shout, 1,000 pounds to British Heart Foundation, 50 pounds to Christian Aid. Yeah, I mean, that's not going to work either, is it? Or, or maybe you remember, I know, love my neighbor. That's a good idea. So you spot people on the towpath. Lovely coat. What a nice dog. You're just sort of throwing out these attempts to try and find some way to do something that will save you. It's a nonsense. At that point, whooshing down the river, hopelessly heading towards the sluice gates, and unable with your own resources to do anything, you need a saviour. Somebody's got to get in there and save you. That's the difference between what the people have in mind. What must we do to do the works that God intends? Give us something to do, Jesus. Give us some instructions to follow, some rules that we can keep, some religious duties that we can perform. And the response that Jesus gives, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. Their response... Because now they understand that he's focusing everything in on himself. Their response is to say to him, what signs then will you give us? Verse 30. What sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? Because you know, Jesus, our ancestors, they ate manna in the wilderness for 40 years. Now that was a good sign. Can't you give us a sign like that? But it's clear that Jesus won't play ball, will he? He's not going to multiply signs for them. They've had the sign of the feeding of the 5,000. They've seen the 12 baskets of leftovers. Now they've seen a sign. And multiplying signs to them uh, will not bring belief. Now sometimes we say, don't we, that, that if only we'd been there, yeah, if, I, if, I, if, if Jesus would just appear to me, or if I'd been there in the first century and, and could have seen Jesus and seen the miracles, then I'd believe. It'd be so much easier to believe then. But it doesn't look as though it is. They've had their sign, and still they don't believe. So the options that Jesus rules out, no more signs, no rules and regulations for them to follow, 
And instead, secondly, in the very heart of our passage, the claim that Jesus places before them. In so many ways, the people miss the point. Jesus redirects them by telling them, it's not Moses who supplied the bread from heaven. That's not the bread that they should be chasing. No, they should be chasing the true bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the people say, good idea, Jesus. Give us this bread. Verse 34. But they are still thinking material bread. They are still confusing the sign with the thing that is signified. And therefore Jesus has to make it utterly clear. When he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Notice two things about this. Notice, first of all, that Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He chooses the most fundamental of foodstuffs, doesn't he? The bread of life. He doesn't say, I am the icing sugar of life. You know, as if Jesus were some sort of sugar coating to make life a little bit more palatable. He doesn't say, I'm the after-dinner mint of life. You know, the, the sort of, the, 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 little, the little add-on at the end of the meal. Gives a nice finishing touch, rounds things off. He doesn't say, I am the obscure delicacy of life that only the sophisticated few will understand. No, I am the bread of life. Essential foodstuff. Utterly necessary. And then notice, secondly, that I am the bread of life. It is Jesus who is the bread of life. It is very, very personal. Christianity is not about believing in a philosophy. It is about believing in a person. When you become a Christian believer, you don't don't adopt a set of abstract truths you accept a saviour, Jesus Christ. You don't love his approach to life. You love him. It's very personal what Jesus is saying here. I am the bread of life. Whoever eats of me, whoever drinks of me, it's a personal encounter. You meet him, you believe in him, you feed upon him. What an intimate illustration to to, to speak in terms of eating and drinking him. What more personal metaphor could there be? And and is such a thing hard to believe that that this is what's needed? That this first century figure needs to be fed upon? Hard to believe that, that that really is the key to having eternal life? Yeah, it is hard to believe. Jesus tells them that it takes the very work of God himself to bring anyone to believe it. Is that what he's saying in verse 37? All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. 
But you see that, that that's the basis on which, if you're a Christian believer, you are secure. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me. If your sense is that, that you've taken hold of God, then understand that you can also let go of God. No security in that. But when you become a Christian believer, you come to understand that it is God who's taken hold of you. It was his will. The Father gave you to the Son. And because he's given you to the Son, the will of him who sent me is that Jesus should lose none of all that the Father has given him. Coming to Christ is very personal and it's very permanent. So do you see, first of all, the options that Jesus rules out? There's, there's no rules, there's no regulations to be followed. Uh, and then secondly, the claim that Jesus makes to be the very bread of life itself. And then finally notice the consequences that Jesus declares. You, it's not a great surprise at this point, is there, that the, having said this terribly personal, terribly strong claim that, that a, Jesus provokes a response, and you see the response in verse 41, uh, the Jews there began to grumble. They grumbled because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And in a sense, they're saying, who do you think you are, Jesus, to say these things? They've now heard what he's claiming, and they're indignant. Jesus, this is outrageous for you to say this. I mean, we know your mum. We know your dad. We know where you came. You came from Nazareth. You didn't come down from heaven, for goodness sake. Don't you think you are making these claims? And the very idea that we should feed upon you. I mean, I mean, that's just unpleasant, telling us to eat your flesh and drink your blood. I mean, what, what nonsense is this? But on both scores, Jesus is, is completely uncompromising, isn't he? It's not, he tells them in verse 46, not just that he has come down from heaven, no, but, but that he is the only one who has ever seen the Father. And it's not that eating his flesh is an optional idea, verse 53. No, in fact, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Because, verse 55, my flesh is real food, my blood, real drink. Please see the absolute nature of these claims. Please see that there is an, there is an either-or-ness about what Jesus is saying here, isn't there? Do you see that? Either you feed on me, and then you live... Or you don't feed on me, and then you die. It's one or the other. Either you eat my flesh, and you will be raised up on the last day, when the judgment comes, when all flesh encounters the God that created them, and is judged. Either you feed on me, and on that day, you have eternal life, or you're not feeding on me, and on that day, you will face eternal separation. It is one or the other. There's no room for some sort of rather respectable middle ground where people can revere Jesus as a wise teacher who said lots of nice things and it would be 
better world if we all followed him. There's no room for some sort of neutral territory where we can be uh, admiring of Jesus' sacrifice and all try to be a little bit more self-sacrificial in the way that we live. Jesus rules out that kind of grey mid-zone and says, you know, there's either. Either you believe in me and I'll raise you up on the last day or you don't believe in me uh, and I won't. Either you feed on me as the bread of life or you're not feeding on me and you won't have eternal life. And just in case you're confused, don't don't confuse what Jesus is saying here uh, with the Lord's Supper. This feeding on Jesus, he's not talking about the Lord's Supper here. Um, There hadn't been a Lord's Supper when he said these words. Uh, They hadn't come to the, uh, the meal the night before Jesus died. No, what we do in the Lord's Supper points back to this. It's another sign pointing to the thing that is signified. But this is the thing signified. The thing signified is that there is a Jesus who is capable of giving you and I an eternal life, and we need to believe in him. It's, it's funny what he's saying, isn't it? That eating of him gives us life. We spend most of our time eating dead things. Have you thought about that? Yeah, I mean, we, we eat dead meat, dead lettuce, dead carrots, dead everything, really. Somebody's going to be clever and say, oh, we eat live yogurt, which would just be annoying. Um, no, no, we eat dead things. And for a while, they keep us alive, but not permanently. Jesus is the only life that we can eat and gives us eternal life. As it happens, uh, this past week, uh, I sat down with a man newly diagnosed uh, with advanced cancer. Uh, And I read these words to him. The one who believes in Jesus has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, Jesus said. I did that to remind my friend of the Jesus that he believes in, of the hope that he can have in the face of death, which, barring a miracle, awaits him before long. But actually all of us are dying. All of us have a terminal diagnosis. The only difference is that my friend has a little bit more detail of the timing. That's why it is so important that we are clear what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus says that he is the bread of life, he doesn't mean that he can help us to find a little bit more fulfillment in life. When Jesus says he's the bread of life, he doesn't mean you've got a bit of an empty space inside you and I'll help to fill it. No, when Jesus says he is the bread of life, He means that he can take you and I through death and into eternal life with him and his Father in glory. These are words that are the key to dying well, to facing death with courage and hope. But actually, these are words that are the key to living well. 
because they remind us that, that the life of faith isn't a life of doing stuff for God and hoping that we will earn our way into his heaven. No, the life of faith is believing in Jesus who is the bread of life to you and I. And that that life of faith is personal, about a relationship with the Savior. I found myself thinking, what what, what are we going to do as we get to the end of of a talk on these verses? What what shall I say now as we wrap up? Shall, Shall I tell you some things to do? Remind us to read our Bibles and to pray and to to go and tell other people about this. And it struck me that we so badly want to hurry past this believing bit and find out the stuff that we should therefore be doing. That's always our tendency. You know, to hurry past the believing bit. And I don't want to do that this morning because Jesus doesn't do it, does he? He says, this is the work of God, to believe in the one that he has sent. We need to dwell on this truth, that there is a Jesus to be believed in, that there is a a faith in Christ, that he is the bread of life, that feeding on him gives us eternal life, that he will raise us up on the last day, that these things are true and we believe them. Because if we do believe them, really believe them. I know we say them every week, don't we? We sort of trot out these truths. But I'm talking about truly, deeply believing them. If we did, then everything about our lives would be different. Everything about the way that we think and speak and work would be transformed. So I want to stay here. Stay where Jesus says, which is to call us to believe in the one that God has sent. Let me lead us in a prayer that we might do that. We thank you, Lord God, for these astonishing and famous words of Christ. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Uh, And our prayer this morning is that you would grant that we would believe these things that Jesus declares to us. Pray, Father, that if uh, uh, there are some here who've never taken a first step of believing this truth, that you might grant that they would do so this morning. Uh, For others of us who have heard uh, and uh, trusted in these words, Uh, that you would uh, grant to us uh, a still richer, deeper, fuller sense uh, of who Jesus is, uh, what it is that he has done for us, what it is that he promises to us. Please help us uh, to feed upon him, for he to us is real food and real drink. Amen.